0: lasso. Let's go directly into meditation. Please find a comfortable position. the underlying motivation of bodhicitta, and explicitly, as an expression of loving-kindness for yourself. Settle your body, speech and mind in the natural state. And for a while, let's focus on the cultivation of mindfulness of breathing with the initial emphasis of deepening and deepening the sense of ease and relaxation without losing the clarity with which you began. And then from there, gently introduce the element of stillness or stability And with or without counting, give a bit of effort to sustaining the continuity, the flow of your attention, without distraction. But without losing the sense of ease and looseness that you cultivated at the beginning. and let your eyes be gently open with no strain, no tightness, no discomfort around the eyes or with the eyes themselves, totally relaxed blinking whenever you feel like it but your gaze vacant, as if you were daydreaming but let's not daydream let the awareness remain still and direct the light of awareness to one out of six domains of experience, of course, the the mental domain. Attend to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it and simply sustain the flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. Monitor the flow of mindfulness with your faculty of introspection. Utilize it, refine it. And observe as quickly as you can any deviation from this balance. Deviation into excitation, you know what to do. Deviation into laxity and dullness. So do repair, do rebalance the flow of mindfulness when you see it is strayed. Apply the introspection as frequently as needed. Recite the very simple or utter the simple syllable PET in just a minute But I will not startle you, it will just be a signal to stop To stop all doing Stop directing your attention to one domain or another Stop fixing, stop monitoring Stop desiring, striving, modifying and doing Just abruptly with a discontinuity. Stop doing, and rest in the awareness that lingers when the mind stops. So. so just for a very brief time, let's step back from this chapter and see what he's doing. Uh, because as he says, right towards the end of this chapter, uh, in terms of these public teachings, I'm finished, there's really nothing more to teach. Uh, what does come next, of course, is a whole chapter on Tutgel, the direct crossing over. But that implies that that's not really part of the public teaching. And generally speaking in Dzogchen, that's not given in public gatherings, it's given more to by the Lama when he sees that some of his, his or her disciples are really ripe, they really know how to dwell in rikma, they can do that at will, and then brings them to that. Um, so, uh, he's kind of finished apart from that aspect. And when one sees, sees the, sees the uh, title of the chapter, Mahamudra, might very well think, oh, now something even more special, something beyond non meditation, something very esoteric. And then he doesn't talk about Mahamudra at all, hardly. He goes back to the preliminaries and, and points out hey, those who are designed to bring about some certain transformation, purification, for which there are indications that it worked. Just like taking medicine, you feel better. You do Vajrasattva practice, these are the signs that it worked. And then he spends the rest of the chapter, most of the chapter, as we've seen, reviewing shamatha. And as I simply reflect upon this, or just kind of see what comes up, my very strong sense here, in terms of the rationale, is that once one has been introduced to the range of preliminary practices, which is in fact very vast, it's not just five, and then these different modalities, and he taught quite a few of the shamatha, and then different modalities also of the vipassana, and then also different approaches to the kharusā, the, uh, the pointing out, and then the practice, the, pr- the point, pointing out instructions, there were of course different, different wordings that were used, but also in terms of the practice, they weren't all the same, they weren't just, you know, photocopies of each other. So by the time you've had all of that, I think there could be a great temptation Uh, very understandable temptation, to say, well, now that I got to Mahamudra, uh, let's just hang out here, I really like this non-meditation business, that feels really good, I like it. The spaciousness, the openness, the relaxation, and one can start really grasping onto it. (laughs) Why do I want to go back, back to Vipassana? I remember that, that was hard. And the shamatha, that didn't work out too well, but this non-meditation, this is good, this is going well, I like this one. It's all very sweet, but then he says, kind of like, he just, like, big, rough, wake, wake wake-up call. If you don't even, if, 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 if you don't even have the intermediate state, and preferably the great state, of single-pointedness, then you can hang out there in practice all you like, and it's not turning into a path not turning into a path. That's what he says. There's not an interpretation, you can read it again, see whether I'm adding stuff, or somebody recently commented, oh, Alan, you like Shamata so much. Right? Well, yeah, but then why would I like Shamata so much? Was I born that way? Like, what? Well, Shamata <laughs> <laughs> Shamatha! You know? The answer is no. <laughs> you know? It was just kind of like this group effort from His Holiness, and Gesarapta, and Gesangamataegye, and Gyatara and, and His Holiness, and and, and His Holiness, and, 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 His Holiness and, and you know, all coming to you. and then Kama Chama and then Padmasambhava, all the way through. So, kinda like, you know, if you want a path, if you want a path, then don't skip this one. And that's what he's saying. So that's why he's going back now, I think. He's shown you the whole path. Hey, there's your array, there's your bouquet. I mean, he's finished apart from kind of finishing off to perfect enlightenment, at the direct crossing over. So there's there's what I have to offer. Right? That's quite an offering. But now are you serious? Do you really have renunciation? Are you serious about your chitta? Are you really seeking a path? Then, if that's the case, then look back at your foundations. Is your mind still wandering? You still fall under laxity? Then, if you are, then the pointing out instructions may not be really helpful. And your practice may be really hanging out in neutral, in your dualistic mind. Not going anywhere at all. But, at least you can call yourself a Mahamudra practitioner. That'll impress some people. (laughs) So that's what he's talking about. He keeps on going back to it, back to it, back to it. And uh, really lays it out with extraordinary clarity, I think a total lack of ambiguity that this is the foundation, that simply stage four is not going to cut it. Stage six, or that intermediate state where it's like the river flowing down through the valley, well okay, but what you really want is that great stage of single-pointedness and that corresponds to the eighth stage which is called single-pointedness and we know, because I've had a lot of teachings on that, done a fair amount of practice that when you do reach the eighth stage, just to remind you on that one when you read eight days out of nine, and then comes shamatha. At that point, the tiniest bit of effort, and you slip right into samadhi, you can stay for hours. You can stay for hours in samadhi without any effort at all, with not even subtle laxity, just coarse, medium and subtle, not even subtle laxity, that's the most subtle obscuration or imbalance, and of course not even subtle excitation. The senses haven't fully imploded, they kind of waver, They, they kind of waver in and out kind of ethereal, uh, ephemeral but they don't grab you so you hear a big truck go by with his air brakes on It just it's just empty noise it just doesn't distract you at all or you feel some sensations in the body or maybe there's some images coming up in the visual it just has no power to draw you away to distract you and there's really a marginal amount of grasping there and the mind is light it's buoyant it's clear it's stable it's serene it's really useful. It's, it's not as useful as in the full achievement of shamatha, but it's really good, it's really good. So, we'll finish off the chapter this afternoon, but just going back very briefly, we're going to pick up on, yeah, there it is. We're going to pick up on the top of page one eight, 166, but I'm going to go back just very briefly, highlight something I highlighted earlier. looks like it's several pages back. Where was that? Oh yes, here it is. On page 161, and he's combining two texts of tremendous authority because they're entirely experiential. The Ocean of Definitive Meaning and the Oral Transmission of the Lineage of Sittas. So it doesn't really, within Tibetan Buddhism, the Mahamudra tradition within Tibetan Buddhism, I don't know that there's really anything more definitive more authoritative, because it's coming from such profound experience. And here, by practicing in the preceding way, the flow, and this is Shamat, of course, the flow of subtle and coarse ideation is cut, so the mind really does go non-conceptual. It's not the case. I mean, he, he says it. Cut means terminate. I mean, there's no other way to interpret that. They stop. Which means it's not that thoughts rise and they pass and they don't bother you. It's that they don't come up. Right? It's silent. Really silent. That's why he means cut. Oh, yeah. And you remain serenely in a non-conceptual state, so that's unequivocal. Now, another unequivocal point, you have no sense of bodily well-being. You may have that prior to that point, physical bliss and all kinds of stuff, but when you get to this state, you don't. You don't even have a sense of the presence of your body. You feel totally unincorporated, disembodied, disembodied spirit. As if you were deep asleep, but radiantly clear in deep, dreamless sleep and radiantly clear. Not like ordinary lucid dreamless sleep, where you bring to that probably a degree of clarity or vividness comparable to what you have in the waking state. Because a number of people have not made great progress in shamatha, but they're very gifted for lucid dreaming and, and lucid dreamless sleep. You know, they're good gift, That's a wonderful gift. But since they've not gone through, frankly, the hard work of developing, this, or, developing or unveiling as you like, stability, the vividness, overcoming coarse, medium, subtle excitation, coarse, medium, subtle laxity. They've not done that work. They just go right into the substrate in a lucid dreamless sleep. That's good. But the degree of vividness is not going to be even comparable to the degree of vividness you have here at stage eight. Because here there's not even subtle laxity. So it's going to be brilliant. So you do not feel either the exhalation, or the inhalation of the breath, or its cessation. So, in other words, totally disengaged from your body, and you can easily imagine. I mean, this doesn't make any real imagination at all. If you have no sense of your body, which is so intimate, so up close, right? Then, you clearly, don't have any, any aw- awareness of, the, of, of sound, of sight, of smells, of taste. Because this is the one that grabs us, even in a sensory deprivation tank, right? Maybe no smells, no sounds, no tastes, and so forth. But you still have that tactile sensation. That's that one's difficult to disengage from. Well, it happens in deep sleep. It happens at death, and it happens here. And then the mind becomes. Here we are, classic. The mind becomes becomes blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. Okay. Now that's why you're in meditative equipoise. Now, if you look at that description, and then you look at the description of What's it like, once you've gone through all of the nine stages and beyond the ninth stage, you fully achieve shamatha, you, you achieve access to the first jhana, you cross the threshold from the desire realm into the form realm. What's that like? It's like that. And that is the description of that. And it's what Songha pre- presents in his medium and his long, long his, his great exposition, of the stages of the path. There's just no difference. At all, but if you look over to Buddhaghosa, there's no difference, and you look at Vasubandhu and Asanga, there's no difference, and if you go, go over to Pad, uh, Padmasambhava, in the Vajra Essence and so forth, there's no difference. So when you see, and these are widely different sources. I mean, fifth century India, Padmasambhava, Tsongkhaba, you know, and then here we have from Katusa, uh, yeah, so um considerably later. They're all the same, well, they're all referring to the same thing. And he says also, this is common to non buddhist to Bombos and so forth and so on. But what's described right there is not simply the eighth state. It's not simply that single, the eighth state, where it's still like an ocean mountain with my waves. Beyond that is the ninth stage. It's even subtler. And that's like Mount Meru, and beyond that is Shamatha, access to the first jhana. And that's where this very radical and very robust, durable, shift in your prana takes place, that you really have a new base camp. So something real subtle, but really physiological, physical takes place. And of course, then the corresponding shift in the mind, and that becomes your new base camp, right? So that's the full achievement of shamatha. Not cutting corners, not stopping short, but going all the way. And I have on my computer, I didn't bring with me, but I saw it, I've read it a number of times that I'm almost certain it was in, the, in this ocean of definitive meaning, the author says, the great Kamapa says, if you can fully achieve shamatha, that's best. Right? How could one say anything? How could one refute that? It's best. But if you can't, well, this state is good. This this will be sufficient. And that is the eighth stage. Okay. Sixth stage is close, but sixth stage is rocky. It's rocky. You'll recall, that's when so many nyam come up. You really. You're not dredging the depths of samsara. That's later. This is dredging the depths of your own individual psyche, and for many of us, that'll keep us busy for a while, right? And so, quite a number of people who proceed in a very diligent, sustained practice get to six, and then wobble, 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 ee, fall back. They think of something else to do, <laughs> anything, anything but this, right? So it takes some real encouragement, some real support to get through that one into the seventh. seventh's getting pretty smooth. Get to eight, it's really smooth. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight this. This is a very clear description of full shamatha, the, f- the full deal, right? So, but now we go and pick up on the rest, the rest of the text, and we're just gonna pick up on the bottom of page 165. I'm re- rereading again, and this, this is from Kamechame, okay, the larger font, you can see. So, the custom of not being introduced inside until the superior state of single-pointedness has arisen, the superior state would be the eighth state, or better, because clearly the full achievement of the shamatha is better than that, uh, is the Kadam Lamrim tradition, tracing back to Atisha. So this is the Sutrayana approach, and Atisha was tremendously strong in all, all aspects of Buddhism but in his lamp for the path to enlightenment, and his seven-point mind training, in the Kadampa lineage, uh, then they're, they're very strongly emphasizing the sutrayana as a basis. So this is the, this is the approach of the, of the Kadam Lamrim tradition, which follows the sutra tradition. Okay? But now we turn the page. This is not the tradition of Mahamudra and Yoga or Mahamudra Zokchen. Dzogchen. Now he is making something of a generalization here, but he certainly speaks with great authority. And so, this is not the tradition of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And so now he cites another classic, the the Precepts of the Four Contemplations. So, twenty years ago or so, when I translated this, the text, I translated the Four Yogas as the Four Contemplations. Um, But you may as well go back to yoga, you know, because that's what it is. Just that you don't think it's some asana or something, right? And so, uh, the Precepts of the Four Contemplations, again, another classic text, which is a special teaching on meditative practice taught by the incomparable Takpo, Takpo Gampopa. So again, he's citing a, a tremendous authority, great adept. This accords with the position of Jiktin Sumgun, one of the Karmapas, Zhang Rambeje, Yare, as well as the experience of Yang Gumba. So he just cited some of the stellar Mahamudra adepts in the history of Tibet. Okay, So now he's going to show something distinctive about the relationship between Shamatha and the actual practice of uh, the Mahamudra and Dzogchen according to this Mahamudra tradition. Among the four yogas, I'm just going to go back to the Sanskrit, it's easier, frankly. Otherwise you're wondering, oh, contemplation, what's that, what's that? It's the four yogas, starting with the yoga yoga of single-pointedness, which we've looked at. Among the four yogas following the state in which the dispersion of ideation is uninterrupted. Now, my English there is not all that clear, but the meaning turns out to be very clear. And that is the dispersion. They've dispersed. They're gone. So the goneness of ideation is and uninterrupted. In other words, it's really quiet. Okay, it's really quiet. We're looking at ocean here. It's really quiet, and it's uninterrupted quiet because the dispersion of thoughts is uninterrupted. They're gone. They're gone. Okay, and that becomes clear in a later in a later citation. If that's not clear right here, following the state in which the dispersion of ideation or thoughts is uninterrupted, the stillness in which one rests in a non-conceptual state is like the unwavering stillness of the ocean. Okay. Well, we know when you, when you have the map, when you know those different metaphors, then that locks right back into stage eight. Okay? That's where it is. So back to stage eight, which is pretty formidable. If one is if if one is skilled, whoops, uh, all the kadambas also regard that as the practice of meditation. Have you achieved a very how do you say, laudable, useful, productive, transformative meditative state? If you've achieved that eighth stage for which the metaphor is, oh, the unwavering stillness of the ocean, and they all agree, sure, they all agree. If you wanted to go into state regeneration practice, for example, and you had that degree of samadhi, but you have not achieved shamatha, but you had that kind of samadhi, and then you wanted to go into Vajrayogini, or Yamantaka, or Lakebourne Vajra, oh you'd be terrific. You'd really, really get the job done. And then you could just finish it off, finish off your shamatha. Uh, you know, like a fireworks display, finish off your shamatha, in state regeneration, with the divine pride, the emptiness, the bodhicitta, the whole works. That would be quite majestic. Okay? Very suitable. So, all the Kadambas regard, also regard that as the practice of meditation. If one is skilled on the technique, so one experiences no craving for such stable samadhi. And that's a big one. Because you can imagine, if you have attachment to ordinary stuff, I've said this already, but imagine, if you have attachment to ordinary stuff in the desire realm, and it's hard to kick. Just imagine how hard this is going to be to kick. If you got to that eighth stage, or better, that eighth stage alone, where just any time you want to sit down, you basically have a tiny bit of effort, like again, pushing a, like pushing a, a, a toboggan down, a toboggan chute, you go, boop, and then, and then it's gone. Imagine you could do that. Would you be attached to that? Probably. Well, you have to overcome that, because as long as you're attached to the functioning of your mind, then you'd not be able to break through. Right? So, if one is skilled in the technique, so one experiences no craving for such stable samadhi, that's formidable. It comes from that deep sense of ease, deep sense of letting go of all grasping, all preference. So, there's one. That's a big one. That's a big one. And if the practice is imbued with the elixir of wisdom, single pointed meditation arises. So now this now is in the context of Mahamudra. This is not just the shamatha map, which is for people, for shravakas, for Pratyekabuddhas, buddhas, bodhisattvas, Sutrayana, and so forth. Now this is now within the Mahamudra map, right? Within this map, single-pointed meditation, clearly corresponding to the first of the four yogas. But you see, he's using his words so carefully. These great masters do. If your practice, number one, you've, got, you've achieved a really superb level of samadhi. And appearances are still arising, but they just, they don't harm you in any way, they don't perturb, they don't afflict in any way. Nothing is afflicting you. Your mind isn't afflicting you, surrounding appearances are not afflicting you. Serene, joyful, blissful, clear. Whoa. And if you can experience all of that and release the grasping, and in addition, you imbue it with with the elixir, it's a lovely phrase, imbue it with the elixir of wisdom. It's, It's an alchemical, alchemical metaphor to transmute it, instead of it simply being a mundane samadhi, you know, very up in the upper reaches of the desire realm, which is what the eighth stage is, if you can transmute it with vipassana, exactly of the kind he described, vipassana probing into the origins, the location, the destination, and those other methods, if you can do that, then single-pointed meditation arises now in the context of Mahamudra. Yoga integrates method and wisdom, in this context, shamatha and vipassana. So those yogas are able to unite naturally. That is said to be yoga. Okay. Now we really look, there's yoga, there's the first yoga, there's the yoga of single-pointedness. You've not fully stepped into, you've not fully realized it <coughs> until you have transmuted it from the mundane to the super-mundane with the insight into emptiness in your own mind. That realization is not yet full, it's not consummate, but it's genuine. So that's a very, very compact statement there. I'm going to give an interpretation. One can develop shamatha using different, many different methods, clearly. Starting with something really coarse like a stone or a stick. Uh, but you may, after some time, you really need to outgrow that. If you just really get stable on looking at something, it's not going to take you very far. So then you shift, you know, as he did. Padmasambhava lays out a whole sequence, going from coarse to subtle in natural liberation. And then kama does the same thing, from coarse to subtle. And they're inviting you explore these, test them out, you know, and generally move from coarse to subtle. It's a natural thing to do. And so you may, you may achieve shamatha using a Buddha image, for example, classic technique, taught in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. You may achieve shamatha there. And then once you've achieved it, you release the image, and your mind just then settles effortlessly in the substrate consciousness. You may achieve shamatha by way of settling the mind, that being your object. Attending, attending to the space of the mind and the events arising within it. You may achieve shamatha, in a manner of speaking, taking the fruition as the path, and just resting in awareness with no referent outside of awareness, and achieve shamatha that way, right? Now, it's widely known though, and this is in the Sudryana, uh, there are gifted people out there, Wombo numbu. Gifted people, they come with a lot of le to, that uh, karmic momentum from the past, you know. And so Tsongkapa himself, who tends to be very, very strict, very sequential, very, very much of a lum rim, you know, he himself says, I can't remember where, but I'm sure he says it, uh, because it's true, uh, that for the very gifted, they may, from beginning, go right into Vipassana, into Vipassana on the nature of emptiness. And if they're very sharp, very gifted, doing that without much shamat at all, they may really gain some experience and then realization of emptiness, and emptiness can be their object of shamatha, which means they're simultaneously deepening the realization of emptiness, and they're using emptiness as their object of shamatha, so the method itself is a union of shamatha vipassana, And they fully achieve shamatha. They go through the nine stages, and they have all those signs taking place, but this is, mm, how do you say, shamatha? extraordinaire mm-hmm. because the object. The method, the quality of the stillness, the overcoming of laxity, excitation, that's the same. But what you're attending to, unlike simply attending to a Buddha image, which has a lot of, you know, blessings to it, or attending to the substrate, well, that's fine, but it's ethically neutral, you actually have achieved on vipassana. Well, that's a big deal. Right? So, that is possible. You've heard that, haven't you, Glenn? Yeah, so it's common, common knowledge. And it's not just Gulupa, I'm just mentioning, because Tsonggapa tends to be really very tough, tough-minded, because he recognized back in the 14th, early 15th century, so many people skipping, 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 and then having sex and thinking it's, you know, it's, it's yapyum, and having, drinking, and thinking, you know, I'm practicing crazy wisdom. You know, this kind of rubbish has been going on a long time, and Tsonggapa came in and really cleaned up the vinya a lot, which is good. The 13th Dalai Lama did the same thing really said, hey, if you're a monk, be a monk. Don't screw around. And if you think you have the ability to go, be, be a monk and, you know, engage in consort practice, show it. As my Lama Gyatara said, put up or shut up. That's Sonkhaba, that's the 13th Dalai Lama, you know. So I respect that, I have only respect for that, right. But even as a as, as tough-minded, a great scholar, prodigious scholar, as well as an accomplished yogi, as Songabha says, yeah, this too is possible. You just go right to Vipassana and achieve Shamatha by way of that. Right? But what about beyond, Samatha, beyond beyond Vipassana? What about, are there other ways of achieving Shamatha? The answer is, of course, there are. Stage regeneration. Stage regeneration, this assumes, of course, bodhicitta. It assumes, of course, very, very deep faith in pristine awareness, Buddha nature. And it assumes you've got pretty darn good visualization abilities. But of course, you must have realization, maybe some genuine, real taste, some genuine experience, or oh, realization would be preferable. And so, this is what makes that approach to shaman so massively powerful. And, and lamas, I mean, really wonderfully qualified lamas, accomplished lamas like Lama Zopa Maji and many others, say, you know, if you can, shaman, Of course, it's important. I mean, I don't. I've never heard any lama say, all. I, I, I won't say that. But um, <laughs> yeah. I was. I've never heard any qualified lama say <laughs> shaman is not important. Uh, of course he says it is. Uh, but if you can achieve it by way of stage regeneration, then it's terrific. I mean, so many benefits. But there is no stage regeneration without, without bodhicitta. There's no stage regeneration without realization of emptiness. So that's even harder then, one could say. Right? It's called cause of divine pride also. But it is a way. And great adepts have followed it. So, is there anything beyond that? Yeah, there is. Sure. I don't have to make up anything. Just report what I've heard. That's what I am messenger service. The Vajra essence and also the enlightened view of Samantabhadra, two of the five, revealed by Dujum Lingba. And I mentioned this so I can be really brief. Uh, if you'd like to see where you are, uh, a simultaneous individual, you're here and you're liberated. I think you probably got that one figured out. <laughs> <laughs> you're still here. <laughs> or you're a a, a a person of middling faculties, those are the ones that go off into total solitude and for three weeks do nothing more day and night. Really, it's a full-time job. You go off into solitude, you practice Guru Yoga, you make supplications of the Guru, you take the four empowerments on your own, and then just day and night, you merge your mind with space and you don't do anything else. And you'll either get really bored, scattered, agitated, anxious, let me out of here, or you'll, you may be mediocre, kind of like it was kind of cool, or you'll realize rikpā. And you may realize rikpā and simultaneously achieve shamatha in your realization of rikpā. In which case, go directly to Tutgala, direct crossing over, welcome to you, welcome home again. You are a Vidyadatta, you're probably born that way, but now you've just found your home, right? So, yeah, it's possible to achieve shamatha, in this lifetime, to freshly achieve shamatha. Now all the words break down, but I'll say it anyway. And what is your shamatha in? Well, it's in Rikma. And But you still have to achieve shamatha. The notion of becoming a Vidyadhara with, with, and not having achieved shamatha, let alone something beyond that, that's crazy. So when we have, and there are many references in the Gagyu tradition to not going all the way to shamatha, this is sufficient, this is sufficient. There's so many of these great adepts that said that, it would just be silly for me to refute them or want to start debating them. It would just be silly. I'm not going to do that. But it's also silly to think that you could proceed along the four yogas and never ever achieve shamatha. You still mind a little bit, little bit wobbly, a little bit wobbly, still haven't gotten the five jhana factors, still haven't overcome the five obscurations. That just makes no sense at all. So what they're talking about here? You start out in straight shamatha with any of the methods that he taught, such as settling the mind in its natural state. Get up to stage eight and then now stop your shamatha and go into vipassana. As he said, you transmute your shamata with the elixir of wisdom, that's vipassana. And with vipassana, you're not just resting in awareness or looking at the space of the mind, you're gaining some real taste, some experience, some realization of the emptiness of the mind, and that becomes your object of shamatha. And you finish off shamata. When the union of Samadhi Vipassana. That's my interpretation and I'd be willing to debate it. Because I don't feel that, I don't see anybody I'm refuting. We know it's true that you can achieve Shamatha by way of Vipassana. That's clear. And so that's my interpretation. So I'm ready to sit. <laughs> anybody want to debate with me, I'm ready. I'm ready to be defeated if you give me a really good argument. But I kind of doubt it. Make my day. Oh, okay, let's so let's go back. Yeah. So that is called yoga. We just finished the first paragraph on page 166, and we proceed the Tantra of Inconceivable Mysteries among the earlier translations at the Nyingma school, one of the Nyingma Tantras, and the Tantra of the Great River of Ali Kali, the, the, the vowels and consonants of the Sanskrit language, or oh, among the later translations at the New Translation School, with Rinchen Sambo, Atisha, and so forth and so on. Gagyu, Sakya, Gelu. These two, so he's drawing from the old and the new, they state in unison with the majestic samadhi of the lion's contemplation. Consciousness is clarified with single-pointed, unwavering lucidity, and if one is awakened solely by self, arisen primordial consciousness. With firm patience, the suffering of the miserable states of existence is eliminated. So he's again suggesting first the samadhi, single-pointed, unwavering, lucid, with that first and then you open the doorway for the emergence of, the manifestation of, this self-emergent primordial consciousness. Yangonpa, one of the great Tibetan mahasiddhas. First there is the single-pointed yoga of remaining in one state and the samadhi of remaining there is shamatha alone. Okay, so there's the first state within the single pointed yoga, just shamatha, flat-out shamatha. Okay? Here, yoga must entail the union of shamatha and vipassana. So it's not complete and it has that vipassana element to it. It's just shamatha which then is not Mahamudra Dzogchen, because he's already said that shamat is common to non-Buddhists, to Shravakas, Pratyeka Buddhas, and so forth and so on. That means it's not Mahamudra Dzogchen. This is Vadrayana. So, subtle, so, yoga must entail the union of shamatha Vipassana. Subtle and coarse thoughts are calmed right where they are. So they come up they just still vanish. Then the experience of insight, and that's what exactly what it is on the eighth stage. There's no excitation, there's, there's no excitation even subtle, but it's not, as I've said so many times, it's not absolutely non-conceptual. Well, thought will come up, but with no perturbation, no excitation, it just comes up, self-releases. It is not absolutely non-conceptual. So then the experience of Vipassana is the arising of non-conceptual consciousness that ascertains the luminous emptiness of the mind vividly present like the realm of transparent space. So there we have it. In the first yoga, of single-pointed yoga, there must be the union of those two. Meditation in which shamatha and vipassana are integrated entails non-conceptual consciousness when the meditation goes well. Remaining in a state of radiant, vivid, unmediated bliss and luminosity is seeing the essence of bliss and luminosity. De sell de bliss and luminosity, great big combo. Yeah, the essence of the two. Sometimes this may not happen when you meditate, and sometimes it may happen even when you're not meditating. So it comes and goes. This is this is a very characteristic of the first yoga. That it comes and goes. It's not stable and the tendency to reify, especially when you're off the cushion, is still quite strong. It's like it's a hard habit to kick. This is due to not gaining mastery of samadhi. Just as a novice craftsman may be negligent due to having little concentration, so he's showing the wobbliness, the unreliability, the kind of the coming and going of this union of shamatha and vipassana. Well, it's because you have not fully supported it or sufficiently with the shamatha on emptiness, the shamatha on emptiness. That's much more subtle than simply shamatha in the substrate, shamatha in the substrate consciousness, let alone shamatha on a Buddha image. Much more subtle is emptiness. So, Mahamudra meditation begins from this point. So, up to that point, that's in common with the Sutrayana practice, shamatha vipassana. It's shamatha and vipassana on the nature of emptiness. But when you've, when you've made the mind hyper sane, extraordinarily balanced, healthy, robust, serviceable, with your practice of shamatha and then you illuminate it with vipassana. So you really have fathomed the empty nature of the mind which then this kind of a domino effect, that ripple effect. If your mind is empty, then it seems to follow quite rapidly that all objects of the mind must also be empty, right? When you've softened it up that much, that your whole sense of the phenomenal world around you is arising more in a dreamlike nature, Illusory nature, your own mind itself arising, and lu- this mind of a sentient being, that you're not taking yourself nearly so seriously as a sentient being, let alone as a human being, let alone as this human being or that human being. All that soft. You see, more like this is a this is a this is a way of naming. This is conceptualization. It's just a way of talking. Then you're really ready. Now you're ready for Mahamudra. Mahamudra meditation begins from this point. This is to be introduced. Now here's the pointing out instructions. Right? So he discovered the shamatha, he just gave you a recap of the shamatha chapter, a recap of the vipassana chapter, and now he's singing, and then there's that introduction chapter. That's the pointing out instructions. This is to be introduced by an experienced lama, and at this point it is said that the meditative state arises. Now we go into Mahamudra meditative state. There's meditative state within the context of shamatha, meditative state in context of Papashana, and now Mahamudra. The tichen, or the great instruction states, so again we have the small medium and the great stages of that first yoga. The small degree of single-pointedness entails the cessation of manifest dispersing thoughts. So I said, where the phrasing wasn't so quite so clear, the dispersion of ideation is uninterrupted. Well now there's no mistake in this. It entails the cessation of manifest dispersing thoughts, when the mind is placed in meditative equipoise without modification. Well, that's exactly, and that corresponds to stage eight. Because until stage eight, you still have to fix it. In stage seven, it doesn't take much effort, but you see the mind falling into a subtle laxity, and you tweak it mind falls into subtle excitation, and you tweak it, you modify it, you fix it. Because it's, you know, going off course. Stage eight, you don't need to do that anymore. That's why it said in stage eight, you retire your faculty of introspection. You don't need it anymore. You don't need to monitor anymore. The cost-benefit analysis falls to only cost and no benefit. Because there's nothing to look for. Hey, it's fine. Don't keep on checking in. Don't break the flow. Right? So even in stage eight, this kind of like this very faint facsimile of Dzogchen practice which is all about non-modification. Well, we find these facsimiles in shamatha on stage eight. It's without modification. You don't need to fix it. Nothing to fix. So retire, the fixer, introspection. So, when the mind is placed in meditative equipoise without modification, having entered a state of bliss, luminosity and non-considerality, attention is maintained single-pointedly. Again, all these words coming back to the late stage. Due to not having yet having mastered samadhi, sometimes this does not occur while meditating and sometimes it does occur even while not meditating. At times there is luminosity and at times not during that period. Now this, this is not true if you fully achieve shamatha. That's just consistent, it's just robust. There's never, I've never seen any reference to this. Sometimes maybe yes, no, no, no. Yeah, when you've fully achieved it, all the nine stages, and then on to Shammata, then that's robust. But here, nine stage, still coming and going. At times there's luminosity, at times not. During that period, realization is not gained, that is when the luminosity is absent, and no great ascertaining consciousness arises. But this can lead to lucidity. But this can lead to lucidity. This begins to open up primordial consciousness, and this is just the beginning of the path. These single-pointed experiences are like seeing the crescent moon on the first day of the lunar month. So it seems quite clear here on the eighth stage, you're not simply following a shamatha trajectory; you're really going to vipassana, maybe even implementing your pointing-out instructions. The, it begins to open up primordial consciousness, that kind of that it's starting to dawn, right. And so, by leaving the mind without modification. It remains in a state of vivid bliss so that you do not want it to dissolve, but even if you do not dissolve it, it will dissolve anyway and no authentic meditation will take place. Without blocking thoughts, recognize the lack of inherent nature of all thoughts that arise and determine this with certainty. So the way to stabilize, to make more robust and durable your meditative state at this point, is not just by practicing more shamatha. As I said before, this really looks like a non-dual path, finishing off shamatha, in that whole non-duality of shamatha and vipassana. And that really gives it strength. And it's said also, it's very very commonly known in Sutrayana teachings, that there's a certain degree of pliancy, a physical and mental pliancy that arises when you simply achieve shamatha, any kind of shamatha. Uh, But when you when you achieve the union of Shama vipassana, right, so hyper samatha then another whole order of magnitude, another whole dimension of pliancy of body and mind arises that far transcends that which is merely shamata, mundane. So he's clearly bringing you quickly, but not prematurely. Because I think it happens a lot, I mean, I won't even comment on outside this context, but it happens a lot. The people go into vipassana, Uh, And they may be very intelligent, very knowledgeable, they may be geishis or kempos, and really doing the practice, but they just didn't bring with them sufficient samadhi. So the intelligence is there, the understanding is there, and they'll get experiences, but it's extremely difficult. I mean, he said it, so my saying it doesn't really add anything. Extremely difficult to really stabilize them, unless you're bringing to the table already quite a high degree of shamatha. Now that's what he said, That's not my interpretation, right? Couldn't have said it clearly, more clearly, and that was earlier. By leaving the mind without modification, it remains in a state of vivid bliss so that you do not want it to dissolve, okay. But even if if you do not want it to dissolve, it will dissolve anyway, and no authentic meditation will take place. Without blocking thoughts, recognize the lack of inherent nature of all thoughts that arise, and determine this with certainty. The great instruction continues. While there is a small degree of single-pointedness, that that initial phase of the first yoga, you may recognize the mind of luminosity and emptiness and a sense of bliss. When thoughts arise from that state, which is clearly shamadevapashana, they are naturally dispelled and there may arise a mentally fabricated certainty that this is meditation. So, subtle degree of grasping still comes up. This is, after all, the first yoga. There's more to come. Thoughts of substantiality, that's exactly reification, will arise towards subsequent appearances, that's in the post-meditative state. Thus there will be the sense of regarding most pleasant experiences as being substantially existent. So the tendency of grasping, reification is still there. You're still, you know, setting out on the path. Due to grasping onto thoughts with the notion, this is emptiness, and the appearance of the mind, there will be A little greater luminosity of your dreams but no other progress." So this is a very clear map. And to conclude the citation, still from the Thichan or the great instruction, by entering into meditative equipoise with the thought that the meditative state sometimes does not arise, there may be many delights and fluctuations, and reverence, pure visions, and compassion may increase. These are all nyam. Many delights, fluctuations, reverence, ar- big strong reverence arising, devotion arising, pure visions arising, compassion arising, these are all nyam, they're all nyam. doesn't mean they're bad, it just means they come and they go. And it's most important not to be grasping onto or reifying them. So, powerful statement. Gyalwang Chujie says, the concentrated single-pointedness, explained here, is single-pointed stability in which distracting thoughts have been calmed. Again, that doesn't really occur until stage eight. Even at stage six, it's like a river, a river flowing down a r- river valley. That's not exactly calmed. It's more subdued. That's what it's called, subdued, pacified. But it's not, it's not a notion, it's not calmed. Single-pointed freedom, okay, that's the first one though. He's he's going through the four yogas here, very, very concisely. Concentrated single-pointedness, the first yoga, explained here, is single-pointed stability in which distracting thoughts have been calmed. The second yoga, single-pointed, but they all have in common single-pointed. If you don't have shamatha, you don't have any of these. Single-pointed freedom from conceptual elaboration, that's the second yoga, is the non-objectification of the elaborations of signs which occurs while in that state. So you're in a state of samadhi, and appearances do come up, but you, you have ascertained their emptiness of inherent nature. You do not objectify them, that which is here means to reify them, neither out there or in here. These elaborations of signs, signs are all the targets of the mind, the objects of the mind, you don't reify them and you don't reify them while in that state of that union of shama vipassana. That's the second one. Then the third one is the one taste. It's a, uh, it's not the only explanation of it, but it's a very powerful one. This is the single-pointed experience of the one taste, the third yoga. With respect to the elements of non-conceptuality, bliss and luminosity, the threefold sense of bliss, luminosity and non-conceptuality are merged into one taste. Merge into one taste, okay? So any kind of trace of grasping or reivocation of any of them now is definitely past tense, but I'll interpret this. One taste, rochik, one taste, this absolutely has to be. This is an interpretation, but I'll, again, I'll, de- I'll defend it if I were the the bathing courtyard. This has to be a very, very deep realization of Rigpa because it's not just the one taste of bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. It's the one taste of samsara and nirvana, right? Oh. So they're very deep. This is very deep. This is very far along the path. This is the one taste. You're a Vidyadatta by now, and you have very profound realization of Rigpa. And then finally, non-meditation, the fourth yoga. Single-pointed non-meditation entails achieving stability in that, and then remaining in it day and night. Well, he's just described the the state of being a vidyadhartha, one taste. You're you're viewing reality from the perspective of pristine awareness. That's it. Uh, I've never seen any reference to the one taste, the yoga of one taste, that is not that. And so, once you've achieved, once you've come there, and you really know what it's like as a vidyadhartha, with that now, that union of shamatha vipassana already in, and then now, that opening up or cutting through two, the unmediated, conceptually unmediated realization of rikpa by rikpa, the self-knowing, pristine awareness. Your vidyadhar now. So your 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 practice becomes very simple, and that is continue not to do anything at all, but rest in non-meditation, and do it 24 hours a day, in non-doing, non-doing. And that will take you all the way to enlightenment. Now. Does this mean that you will remain for the rest of your life in a cave, not teaching dharma? But even if you're in a cave, don't you need a pee? Don't you need a little food? Go for a walk once in a while. In which case, how can you remain in a state of non-activity, even if you need a pee? Uh, And I think the answer is, again, this seems to be by a process of elimination there has to be only one thing standing, and that is your body moves but your awareness remains still. Appearances happen of drinking water and going for a walk and so forth, but you're not moving, you're not wavering from resting in that transcendent stillness beyond the three times of pristine awareness. And so outward people say, Oh, he's going and chatting with a neighbor. Oh, he's giving some teachings to a close disciple. Oh, oh she's uh, flying. Mm. <laughs> Whatever. You know. But from the perspective of the yogi, no difference. And a number of you here in Araluan or you watched the movie Yogis of Tibet last night, and so you saw Dupan Yeah? You saw Dupan He says, Outwardly, I probably look like human to you. I'm paraphrasing it, but pretty close, eh? Outwardly, I look human to you. Inside very different. Outwardly, he looks like a scruffy old man, talking, talking, doing stuff. Inside, who knows? Inconceivable. So, that's, so he just went in f- four, four phrases there, through the four yogas. And now Kamachamira Muchayi includes the chapter. Which is really, when we look at it, it's how to make sure that your Mahamudra is really turning into the four yogas. And the thing he emphasizes more than anything else is shamatha. Right? So, if you're following Mahamudra, I want to follow this. Then within the context of these public teachings, this is mang chö, it would be enough not to explain anything beyond this. I'll just explain, one thought, one thought came up. It's one of those things where it seems like it has to be true because I can't see how it can't be. In the Dzogchen and Mahmudra literature, there are many many phrases of self-emergent, self-emergent, self-arisen like that. Self, self, self. And uh, if you study Madhyamaka, and you study the Madhyamaka analysis of causality, how does a sprout arise? Does it arise from itself, from other, from both, from neither? Well, you see, he brings his machete and he cuts them all off equally, for none of the above. And, of course, what he's refuting is, does a, a truly existent sprout truly exist? How, how does a truly existent sprout arise? Well, it never does. Therefore, it's not a truly existent sprout, uh, but not from itself. Rang le jung ma yin does not emerge from itself. Rang jung ma yin, not self-emergent. And the logic is transparent. If it's self-emergent, that means it's already there. So it doesn't need to emerge, it's already there. So what's the point of self-emerging? It's redundant, you know. So, it's pretty transparent. The emergence from others is more subtle. But this, this phrase, Rangjung, Rangjung, it's everywhere in Mahamudra, it's everywhere. Especially when it comes to primordial consciousness, Rangjung yeshi. Rangjung yeshi everywhere, self-emergent primordial consciousness. Or oh, the, the text that I've translated with the title Vajra Essence, uh, the Tibetans know it more generally by Neluk Rangjung, Neluk Rangjung, the self-emergent nature of existence. Self-emergent, rangjung. Rangjung again, that comes up. So, one can wonder, I hope, really not worrying about this at this point, uh, are are these teachings of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, are they compatible with Nagarjuna, or are they starting some other philosophical school? Are they, oh, maybe they're becoming Hindu, maybe they're going to start believing in Atman, you know, what's up? Are they refuting Nagarjuna? Are Mahamudra and Dzogchen compatible with Madhyamaka, and specifically Prasangaka, or not? And if we just read the words, we say, well, no. Nagarjuna said there's no self-emergence, Dzogchen, they say, yeah. So, this thought just came up, not just recently, but it came up. Um, From the perspective of Rikpa, which is in the fourth time, time beyond sequence, there's no before and after. The fourth time, Dujiva, there's no before and after because the three times are simultaneous. Right? So from that perspective, we have the Dharmakaya, which is utterly, completely inconceivable, transcending every conceptual category, including existence and non-existence, arising and passing and so forth. From that perspective, the perspective of a Vidyadatta resting in rikpa. from that perspective, the fourth, the fourth time, is not only that Primordial consciousness is self-emergent. All phenomena are self-emergent. Because they're not played out over time, not from your perspective, not from your perspective. And when you first become a Vidyadara, you're resting in their non-doing, not doing anything at all. So you're not applying some very complex, sophisticated dharma recipe. Okay, three parts this, two parts that, let's bring the causes, conditions already. Okay, I think we're about to create primordial consciousness. Oh, success! Lift off! not like that. Primordial consciousness is not conditioned. In the Mahamudra Mahamudra Dzogchen tradition, it's just unequivocal and is uniform. Primordial consciousness, dharmakaya, Buddha nature is not conditioned, does not Arise independence upon anything else, it's not causally created. It's Ranjung, it's self emergent. So as you slip from the present to the fourth time, and you realize from the perspective of the fourth time, from the perspective of Rikma, that Rikpa has manifested, revealed its face, then from your perspective it's self emergent. There is no other possibility. It did not arise independent upon causing conditions. It's not conditioned by them, it doesn't get better because of good causes, it doesn't get worse because of bad causes, it never gets defiled or purified. It's self-emergent, from your perspective. Now, so let's imagine Dupanampeche, this is not a wild stretch of imagination, because c- he said, I can remember all my past life. That's big, that's enormous, and for a yogi to be that candid is extremely rare. Okay, then that puts him way, way up there, right? Am I just completely spaced out? I don't know what I'm talking about. So I have to get this read again. Oh, yeah. So, an ordinary person looking at a person like Dupanamajay, and maybe you could ask him questions, maybe you could get a question-and-answer session, mm-hmm. and said, uh, tell me, did you, in this lifetime, did, was there a time when you first realized Rigpa? He, he's so candid, he might answer that question, who knows? You know? So, tell me, Rambajay, when in this lifetime, I'm under your sixty years or so of training, uh, when did you first realize Rigpa? And he might answer, who knows, he might answer. And then you can answer, well, what meditation were you doing? And what did you have for lunch? And what kind of meditation were, cushioning we're sitting on? And what was happening in that time? And he could, he could tell you, I had this for lunch, and I was sitting there, and this was my cushion, And as he's laughing his head off. Uh, and say, oh, now I understand, now I understand. Uh, and what did you do before that point? Oh, and you'd probably say something like, well, I did my preliminary practices, I did some shamatha, Vipassana, probably did some six yogas of Nauropa. I said, ah, oh, and then you realized rikpa. Okay, good, I've now got the formula. Now I know what causes a person to realize Rigpa. Uh It's really good to be a monk, that really gives you a lot of, a, a heart, a strong core, and you did the primaries, so that contributed to it. You did Samadhi Vipassana, you did six yogas, and all of these causing conditions, and then, voila! So then you, and then independence upon all that practice, you realize rikpa. And that would be sensible. Because he did do all those practices, and after all, it did contribute to his, you know, realization, in all likelihood, right, from your perspective. Because you're working from past, present, to future. You're looking in a, in a matrix where Causes give rise to effect. From his perspective, self-emergent. From the perspective of rikpa, every manifestation of sambhogakaya and imanakaya is self-emergent. From the perspective of sentient being, you purify your mind. You purify your mind. You purify in your mind. You become an arya bodhisattva, and then you can see the sambhogakaya. Say now the sambhogakaya rose because I so purified my mind. Now it appears. From your perspective, cause and effect. From Dharmakaya perspective, no cause and effect, spontaneous, self-emergent, from timelessness, manifesting in time. And that goes for every manifestation of Nimanakaya. Nama, but then when we consider from perspective of pure vision, or, for, or, and that's still kind of fabricated, you're imagining, or from the perspective of pristine awareness, it's not only Buddha Shakyamuni or His Holiness, or like this, that the Namanakaya manifest. But all phenomena, right? All phenomena evenly. All pervasive compassion. All nammanakaya. So from perspective of Dhammakaya, then all phenomena are self-emergent. From this perspective of sentient beings, all phenomena arising independent upon causing conditions, all empty of inherent nature. So you check. That was my hypothesis. If I'm wrong, then you have to debate me. Okay? We're almost finished, and it's dinner time. Ho ho! So he concludes, when the, within the context of these public teachings, it would be enough not to explain anything beyond this. In this tradition, in terms of this single-pointedness, shamatha is most important, but not shamatha by itself. If shamatha is not integrated with Vipassana, it is not included within the set of the four yogas that's unequivocal. According to the general Kagyu tradition, including the Zulman Kagyu, when one is introduced to this alone, this opens a way to further practices without differentiation, the Sikh Yogas and so, and so forth. So even though one knows the distinctions among them, one may not know how to articulate them, so it is difficult to make these differentiations. There are pitfalls within the context of Shamatha, but once you have been introduced to Vipassana, there are no pitfalls. You begin with single-pointedness, and then set out on the path of Mahamudra. Single-pointedness, that's where you have the shamatha and vipassana on emptiness. And then, with freedom from conceptual elevation, the one-taste, no meditation, then you're really going. You're going for gold, you're going for pristine awareness, Mahamudra. So you may practice this yourself without giving up. And there will be no need for you to draw on anything else to enhance your practice. Reverence and supplications alone are enough. There is no need for questioning others, or making any modifications. For by making supplications with intense reverence, your guru will dissolve into you. And by observing the mind, whatever thoughts arise, there will be no hindrances or pitfalls. There is no need to be introduced to that. Proceeding along the stages and paths due to meditative experiences and realizations. Arising from the power of reverence, is the Mahamudra of reverence that was bestowed upon Gutsamba by Dorje Pamo. I, I just find that spectacular. I have no other word for it. Spectacular. Some Samgimi Khyabaru. He's finished. So I'm going to pick up on something a little bit later in the book tomorrow. But that's the core right there. That's it. I don't think it gets better than that. So enjoy your dinner. See you later. And now, you might want to (laughs) talk.